Um, so many don't know what we know and uh, what's easy to lose sight of and take for granted. Uh, and tonight we're going to be talking about that um, as we look back at the world before uh, it was given the luxury and was given the opportunity that it has to this day and, and has continued to be, uh, have been realized in this new world order that began uh, 2,000 years ago. And we're going to be reading up, in, up, up into the, the, the day, this dawn of this new age, the dawn of this new era um, that uh, really um, is the beginning of the church. Uh, we have uh, been unpacking um, the, the identity of the church, the, the, the origins of the church in our first few weeks in Acts. Uh, we spent uh, the first week kind of talking about um, who the church was called to be from the beginning and what makes up our, uh, our essence and um, how we are, are to seek the calling of God and our characters can grow um, in, this new, in this new role. And then last week, we talked about um, what God has called us to do, specifically the commission that he has given us. So we've covered the church in, in really two ways so far in the first few, chap- first few verses of Acts. We've talked about our identity, which is the most important and defining part of our, 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 our character, the most important category you can ever be put in in this world, that as a Christian, now you, you might identify as a lot of different things. You know, we've got our gender, we've got our you know, political status, we've got our, our interests socially and all these other things that we're part of in the culture. Um, we identify as this and that, and that's fine. You can identify you know, the way you want to and how you want to and do what you want to as long as, you know, you, well, you, you know what I mean. You can do what you want to as a Christian. You know what you should do and what you shouldn't do, but you, know, you can identify uh, with this this culture and that culture with this recreation and that sport and all these things, this party and that thing. But as a Christian, you have been given your most important and most defining identity. You are in Christ. And more than that, you are a church member. You are a member of the body of Christ. And that should be more important to you. And that should be more defining of who you are than any other label that you, are, you wear or are given to wear, and I don't have to tell you all that. You know that. You all are here with me, but many of the world don't see this. But we learned in the, or the first few verses of Acts that this was to be so important to us. Our identity in Christ, our identity in his church as a part of his church. And, and we talked about how the mission that God has sent us on is the greatest responsibility we will bear. I know as a husband, you bear responsibilities. As a wife, you bear responsibilities. As a parent, you bear responsibilities. As an employee, you bear responsibilities. As, a, as an employer, you bear responsibilities. God-given responsibilities beyond just what it means to be you know, living in America with our laws and our codes and everything. But as a Christian... We bear the greatest responsibility because we know the greatest treasure and the greatest truth of them all. And with that great power we have been given comes a great, the greatest responsibility to share that good news with the whole world. These first two messages and conversations will steer us throughout this book. We will see the disciples clinging to and coming back to and grounding their faith in these two ideals for the rest of the book as they guard their faith over the rest of their identity as we see them drive uh, and determine to spread the good news to the whole world. And tonight, um, we are going to read a passage that seems less important than the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. In fact, most Bible studies through the book of Acts probably really hit hard the first 11 verses, uh, and then we kind of move into the second chapter because there's really just a lot of exposition that comes after this. There's some things that we don't know what to do with, so a lot of preachers like me, I've done this before, we just kind of skip ahead because we don't really know what to make of it. But tonight, we're going to wrestle with this, 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 this kind of no man's 
land that happens between Acts uh, 1.11 and Acts chapter 2 and talk about how there are really some key ideas that we don't talk about enough that we really can see as a springboard for what's to come. And before we get into chapter 2, we're going to talk about um, what is behind us and how we kind of see all this coming together and how history and and everything else that God has been doing kind of leads us to this moment as the church and as his people. So I want to start off by just reading the remaining part of the chapter so we can hear it out loud. Some of these verses um, maybe you've never heard out loud before in church because they are um, a little bit kind of, you know, secondary to the overall plot, but I do believe they mean something. They are very important to us. So Acts 1 verse 12 uh, says, the disciples returned to Jerusalem as they were told to, from the mount called Olivet, where Jesus ascended, as we read last week and we read in Matthew 28. Uh, And when they entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, which would be James and Jude. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture has been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. It became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language Akel Dama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. So Peter says, hey, we've got some unfinished business to do. We know that Judas's departure was prophesied, not a surprise. We could have saw that coming, but the Old Testament even says to us, which sets a precedent that from henceforth, the Old Testament would be a means of advancing and, and, and clarifying what Jesus has set in motion. And they see that, hey, we need to fill this office because it's important symbolically to, to have a, a 12th member of the team. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So it's the apostolic team. They want to have that complete and have a full, full bench. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, O Lord, you, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And I I love this. They prayed, didn't get anything, so they rolled some dice. They cast lots. And the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the 11 apostles. And just to kind of tease what's going to come at the end of this message, you, you see where we're at in this whole transition between the old and the new, the era before the church and the era that started with the church. You see them praying for God to give them clarity, but still resting on old laurels and doing things like the ancients would do when they couldn't hear from God and were trying to figure it out on their own. We see them kind of stuck in the middle, just on the edge of something brand new that they already had been given the pieces to build and were just about to get the one thing they were 
missing. So, uh, without more to, 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 to linger on that, that point, we'll get to that later. Um, the reasons we don't talk about a lot of what we just read um, is that it kind of feels less important than, than what was promised before in verses 4 and 5 and what comes after, especially chapter 2. And, and some of what comes after really makes null and void some of the key ideas in this passage, as we just mentioned. And that's why we often read or hear this text skirted past or kind of broadly addressed and and we kind of just shrug at it because again we don't really know what to do with it but in a sense that's why Luke includes it so I want you to hear that clearly that Luke includes it knowing that it's going to kind of be you know in this no man's land knowing that it's kind of in the middle of the promise and the payoff and I think that's why Luke is so detailed in including this in between And I think, again, I think Luke wanted to make what was promised and what was delivered stand out that much more by contrast to the alternative way, to the old way of doing things, which they were moving beyond and getting away from. Alternative to what, you wonder? The new way, the new world that they were about to step into, the new order that God had set in motion over creation. Again, back in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, God promised them, Jesus promised them that the promise from the Father was about to come. The power from God was going to fall on them and they would all be baptized in the presence of God. That's a big thing. It's a, that's a new reality. That's not something you read a lot about before this chapter, uh, but you read a whole lot about it after this chapter on into the epistle that Paul, Peter, and James would write. This promise of the Holy Spirit, God with us, dwelling with, around, within, and through, working around with us, this promise is revolutionary and it really is, uh, uh, works hand in hand with this new church age, this new world order that God had put in motion. It's hard to realize, I want to talk about this for a little bit tonight because I think it's, it's, it's easy to, 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 to forget or not to realize it's hard to realize because we've never known it any other way. But before Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God did not move freely in the world. Now, I, I, that's something that we've been brought up in a world where God's Spirit is around us, within us. We sing God with us. But we also know that the reason why it's such a big thing to sing about is because there was a time when that wasn't the case. Now, you and I have never known that world. We've never known that reality. But before Acts 2, the Spirit of God did not move freely. Not because he couldn't or because he was unable to or lacking the ability to. He made a choice in history. And because of his convictions, he could not dwell in the presence of of, of mankind on, on earth. Now, of course, because of the resurrection of Christ, because of Christ's victory over sin and his victory over death, Adam's curse was broken and the curse was lifted. And thus, the Holy Spirit of God, in this new church age, the Holy Spirit of God would re-enter community, re-enter fellowship, re-establish fellowship even better than before with creation, specifically with the church, with Christians, but even those outside the church would be able to feel the impact that he was making. It would be undeniable that something supernatural is working through that group called Christians, that group called the church, that the whole world would be uh, aware that somebody higher than just the power of man, something higher than the power of man was at work in those people's lives. Now, why was he out of community? I want to talk about that for a little bit. Why was he out of community with creation? What does that mean? 
Maybe you've wondered that before. Maybe we can kind of piece things together a little bit tonight. So I want to do a quick walk through history so that we can understand what is about to happen in the book of Acts and what we have never known uh, otherwise in our own lives. So way back, let's go way, way back to the very beginning. Genesis 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering, was moving over the face of the water. So there is no question, in the beginning, the Spirit of God was on earth, was intending on being with God people on earth. God wasn't thinking about whether he would or not dwell with people. He already made his mind up. He was here waiting on people. So the Spirit of God is there, proceeding from God, moving over throughout creation. But of course, we know what happens in Genesis 3. The fall happens, and sin entered creation. And mankind was banished from the presence of God from the Garden of Eden as the angels would guard the entrance. Now, we don't know, I don't know if we can know, just how this impacted and affected creation, how it affected creation, how it changed creation at its core. Clearly, all that is broken and is prone to break in our world is a result of the removal of the Spirit of God and the entrance of sin. The shadow of death spread, has spread over every corner of creation. But here's what we do know, and what I can say pretty factually. When, with sin and death spreading, God's Spirit retreated. With sin and death spreading, God's spirit retreated. Why? Because they were greater than him? No. But because he is greater, holy, humanity chose this, remember, and with embracing sin, this was a rejection of holiness. God continued to work in and around creation, but we learn early and often that he was not where he was not wanted or welcomed. He was not where he was not wanted or welcomed. Now, this doesn't mean that God wasn't persistent because I think we know that God erred on the side of grace again and again, even after he would say things like, hey, this is the end, that he would always show back up, not because he changed his mind, because he was trying to make a statement, right? Hey, things got to change, but his goodness always overwhelmed even his judgment. God continued to be persistent. We know he was. We've seen and read those stories in Genesis and beyond. So it's hard to make these sweeping declarations about where God is and where God isn't. God forbid anybody like me with a little mind and a little perspective that I've got here in 2020. God forbid someone like me stand up here and say, I can definitively tell you where God is and where God isn't. Because plenty of times throughout history, God has worked in places that I wouldn't have expected him to work. And there have been times where I would have thought God would have done something that he didn't do, something that I could see. So I can't say where God is and where he isn't definitively as, as a, you know, a finite little brain human being. But I can make some hunches. And, and here's what we see even in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. We hear God make this statement. My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is flesh. His, de- his days shall be 120 years. So the 120 years was, hey, between now and, and 120 years, I'm going to bring judgment on the earth. And that's, of course, the story of Noah. But in that story, we see that God's spirit, even though he had retracted from creation, even though sin had entered into creation, death had spread, violence and all kind of evil, even then, God was striving with man. Man didn't deserve God to strive with them. Man didn't, wasn't owed anything, yet God just wasn't going to give up on people, even though he had every right to give up on people. His heart wouldn't let him. But we see there he made a decision. And after the flood, we've studied this recently on Sundays, 
um, God shifted his focus to individuals and to Abraham's family, then to Israel as a people. And from that point on in history, we read about the Spirit of God, but only with regard to certain people. And usually it's to appointed, anointed leaders, and it's usually in very specific, very restricted places. So as things started out very broad, right? Genesis 1-1, God's Spirit is all over the world, right? He's dwelling, he's hovering, he's creating, he's a part of creation, he's moving, and, and, and everything flows and exists through him. And then it narrows down. And then as you get into Genesis, Exodus, and on into the Old Testament, God's Spirit shows up only to certain people in certain places on certain days of the week. And if you've read the Old Testament, like most of you have, there's actually a book that was written with the intention of how can we attract God's Spirit? Because we want to we experience Him. We want the whole nation to experience Him. Moses has been hanging out with Him on the mountain. Moses has been talking to Him behind, you know, in certain places on certain days. Is there a way we can get the Spirit of God to dwell with all of us like He used to before the fall and like Moses can experience by Himself? So, obviously God inspired it, but the intent behind the book of Leviticus, you should read this sometime, Leviticus was written to outline and science out how God might be approached by sinful people. Now, might be is a big if, because you don't know, you know, you, they tied ropes to the people's ankles, you never know if it's going to work, because you might be, you have sinned without confessing, there was all sorts of stipulations, all sorts of fears, all sorts of we don't really know how this is going to work out, it was all seen through a glass darkly and dimly. The, the Levites, the people the book was named after, the Levites were a people, a tribe, who separated themselves from the world entirely just to figure out how and if God might be encountered and approached. Now, the result was a convoluted, with all due respect, but a convoluted, systematic, sacrificial order. The tabernacle and after that the temple were built. God committed to dwelling in the holy place behind a number of curtains, behind another holy place. God would dwell in the holiest of all over an altar that was built with angels carved out on it and all sorts of uh, arrangements and all sorts of ornaments. It was this specific holy place where God would dwell and would encounter very specific holy people after they performed very specific holy rituals. You got that? The idea behind it all was in that holy place, the blood of an animal would be poured out. And through that sacrifice, God would see judgment on another in place of the judgment that we deserved. The idea was a life for a life. Judgment was transferred from the guilty to the innocent. And in those days, nothing seemed more innocent than a white, spotless lamb. What began as a communal ritual became a religious ceremony where lambs and goats would be sacrificed, but for what? For the nation to experience the presence of God, but vicariously through a priest who would go in once a week, once a year to different festivals and different times, but they would go in seldomly to represent the people. God made this promise to Moses and to Aaron. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, 
and there that are on the ark of the testimony. So above the mercy seat, between the angels and on the ark. But this is the only place I'm going to exist. This is the only place I'm going to show up. So very narrowly, very specifically, very restricted on a certain day in a certain place with a certain person, they might get to experience the presence of God. They might not come out and you might have to drag them out because they fell over dead because you just don't know what's going to happen in there. Because God's holiness is that above and beyond what our mere mingly flesh can handle and can experience. Now we read this statement repeated throughout Leviticus that emphasizes that idea. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate or make a sacrifice, offer some blood, consecrate yourself, therefore be holy for I am holy. And how could you be made holy? By being under the blood of a sacrifice that died in your place. But because of animals being clearly not enough to replace a person, this was done again weekly, annually, over and over and over again. It was repeated and readdressed. And what this amounted to, what this amounted to was a temporary and location-specific kind of holiness. And that just wasn't sustainable. And again, people weren't experiencing God's presence. Only certain people were getting a taste of it, getting a whiff of it. But the majority, they were as lost and empty as the rest of the world. And while God would show up in his spirit in places beside the temple to prophets and kings, it was almost impossible to translate a pattern. It was just God being God and doing as he saw fit. But there was no science to it all. There was no way to replicate it or capture it in a bottle. God would do what he wanted to do. But the rest of the people, the most of the people, they were just out to lunch when it comes to experiencing his presence. As the story goes, one thing was sure. The world wasn't getting any less sinful. It was getting more holy. And this is what David, inspired, would write in his kind of coming to the conclusion about the condition of man and why God just wouldn't dwell with us. David wrote in Psalms 5.4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So the reason why we can't get in your presence is because we're bad, you're perfect, you're holy, we're not holy, you're God, we're ungodly, so we can't stand in your presence because we've seen people fall over. We know why they fall over, because we are imperfect and we are unworthy of your presence. So why did God restrain himself? Why did God pull back? Not just because he wanted to be away from people, because people could not dwell in his presence. Because sin and death would only bring judgment on them. Isaiah the prophet wanted to make very clear that it wasn't that God didn't want to. It's just this, how, this is how damaging the curse was on humanity. Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. It's not that God doesn't want to. It's not that he can't. Believe me, he's working on a plan. He's going to get it done. But it's going to be a while. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So this is the idea. This is the reality of the Old Testament in the pre-Acts 2 world. There was a separation between you and me and our God. Our sins have hidden his face. So it's not that God wasn't looking towards people. It's that sin had that adverse of an effect on people and that it blinded us. And it hindered us and stunted our ability to see or feel or sense his presence. Sin has hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips with spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Therefore, God is far from us. The story goes that Israel crossed line after line in the spirit of God who had dwelled in the holy place, eventually just said, see you later. I'm out of here. And again, I love all the Bible, but man, Ezekiel is a trip. You should read Ezekiel sometimes. Ezekiel literally sees what he amounts to the mothership. He sees this um, crazy, indescribable wheel show up that has angels and chariots and fire. He sees essentially the mothership of heaven, however that works, coming over the land of Israel. And he sees the Spirit of God being escorted out of the holy place, out of the temple. He sees it moving out room by room by room, escorted by angels, by cherubim, from the holy place back to heaven. Ezekiel 10, 18 says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. He left the holy place. He left the courtyard. He left the threshold. He left the planet. While the Spirit of God would still speak to and through prophets, it was clear the window of opportunity was getting narrower, not wider. And for 600 years, God's voice became almost mute. Revelation and inspiration ceased. And for over 400 years, the Bible was considered a finished book, an unfinished book in spirit, but a finished book in reality. The prophets expected something. They hoped for something. They dreamed of something, but it doesn't seem like that something was ever going to happen. Ezekiel saw a day when the Spirit of God would move again in the temple, but many began to wonder and doubt if that day would ever come. But we know, because the writer of Acts, Luke, wrote about it, Luke 1 opens up with these reluctant priests going through the motions, not expecting anything to happen as they went through another Sabbath tradition. And they drew straws to see who was going to go in and just go through the motions and not hear anything, not see anything, not feel anything. Let's just do it again. Let's get out of here. Zechariah drew the straw on that Sabbath day, remember? He went into the holy place and was startled and was scared because he had never experienced something like he experienced that day. As an angel of God filled with the Spirit of God filled that holy place and God said, Zachariah, I've been waiting for this day. I've been waiting for you to walk into this holy place. This is the beginning of something brand new. From there, of course, Jesus is born and brought to the temple as a baby to be uh, uh, christened or to be uh, dedicated to the Lord. And when he was brought in, there was the, there was the prophet Ananias, Anna, there was Simeon. There were these saints that had been hanging out in the temple waiting for that baby to be brought in the temple. And when he came in, they began to shout and they began to celebrate because they believed that was the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, the glory of the Lord. He had left one day, but he had come back. As Jesus grew older and began his ministry, it was clear that God was with him. And he made it clear that the presence people encountered in his company was unlike anything anyone had ever seen or felt. He stood up at the beginning of his ministry at his hometown synagogue on a Saturday and said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who would claim something like that? I mean, the Spirit of God was in the holy place. He was on the mountain. He was in the fire. But upon a person? In a person? 
That was, the, that, that was something they had dreamed about, a Messiah might would bring, but Jesus said, hey, I am the Messiah. The Spirit of God is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that word year can mean era or age. He's saying this is the beginning of a new generation, a new era. The rest of his ministry speaks for itself, and now after his resurrection, he promised that the same presence and power at work in him that rolled the stone away was here to stay, to move into the hearts of his followers, and he promised in Acts 1-4 that he was going to fulfill this promise. The Holy Spirit of God, with sin now being forgiven, death being defeated, the Holy Spirit of God has free reign to move and work through and in his church. Again, I wanted to give you that just brief snapshot of history because we've only ever lived in a world since this took place. We only ever lived in a world, and isn't it true that we, we come to church all our lives, we sing the same songs, we hear the same sermons, we do the motions, and it's just like it gets kind of, we get numb to the feeling, we get numb to the experience, we don't know how to distinguish what is and what isn't, we just kind of get so, route, so routine with this. But God forbid this ever be routine. Because generations of people died hoping to see the day and you and I get to live it. If we only ever lived in a world where this is our reality, it's easy to not know that life could be any different. But of course, we're better for that luxury. But I felt like it was important for us to understand what has happened up until this point in the story, to know our own backstory, to reference where we could be and where we are. The disciples gather in this upper room anticipating this new normal, this new world order they were about to enter into. A few things about their, their habits and their, their behavior in verses 12 through 14 I want to bring out before we close. A few things in this passage that stand out as being crucial for them, optimizing what was, com- what was coming and what they would always continue to make a key part of their, their meetings and parts of their, their, their devotion, parts of their commitment to the church um, that we should take note of and that we should replicate. In verses, uh, verses 13 and 14, there are four things I bring out of these verses. We find the disciples staying, uniting, devoting, and praying. We find them It says they were staying in the upper room. And it says they continued or were devoted with one accord, as in they were united and devoted to each other and to the church. And they continued in prayer and supplication. The Spirit of God hadn't fallen yet. But when he fell, they would be ready. And these four concepts are things we see as pillars in the early church throughout Acts. The reason why they get stuff done is because they have these four pillars as a part of their church. Now, what do I, what do I mean by staying? They weren't just meeting. They were staying there. You hear me? Now, they went home, maybe. They had to go out and get things and do things, but in their minds, in their hearts, they didn't just meet at the church on Sundays. They didn't just meet once or twice extra times a week. They stayed there. Now, I know this is where there's a line where people say, hey, I got a, I got a life to live. I'm not saying, and there's some rooms back here if you want to use them, but I'm not saying stay in that way. 
But they were living in this upper room. It was their refuge. But come on, think about the connection here. They didn't just show up for a service. Church was their lifestyle. That's the difference in us and them. I'm talking to me as well. That's the difference in me and these guys. They didn't just show up to do a fancy service once, twice, three times a week. It was their lives. They weren't checking in and checking out. They were sold out to this. They were called to it. It was everything to them. Is it everything to us? Are we just meeting or are we staying? We also saw that they were united. They were united in one accord. We see that phrase all throughout the book of Acts. They were in selfless unity. Now, does that mean they always got along? No. Does that mean they always agreed with each other? No. But they always united at the end of the day, not because it was easy, but because it was essential. Hear me? Do they all have the same opinions? No. Do they all like the same stuff? No. But they, at the end of the day, said, you know what? It's not easy to always get along and always be united in one accord, but it's essential that we always defer to that. You know why it was essential? It was essential to agree on whatever was expedient to advance the church, to obey their calling, to grow their characters, and to accomplish the Great Commission. See, they had their priorities right. They, they said, you know what, I don't always want to do what you want to do, and we don't always see what I die. But you know what, we've got to be, we've got to do what's expedient to the growth and the advance of the kingdom of God to the movement that we have been given the keys to. Again, they were a devoted people. They kept investing in the greater body for a common greater good because what was good for, the, for their brother and sister was good for them, even if it didn't seem that way at first. They kept investing in the greater body for the greater common good, intently pursuing the things of God because of the things that God had promised them. Does that describe you? Pursuing the things of God because of the things that you have read that God promises you and me. They were devoted because they knew it would be worth it. And to put a bow on all that, they were a praying people. In prayer, they called on the God who had called on them, wiring their hearts with heaven's promises and heaven's power. That's what prayer is all about. Not about getting our will and getting our way, but realizing God's will and God's way is everything. And prayer is so that we might see his way become the only way for us to live. So these four mainstays, they set their hearts toward this new age where the Spirit of God would dwell with them and that's what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. Every time we find the church staying, uniting, devoting, and praying, the Spirit of God shows up in a big way and He gets stuff done. When they didn't have anywhere better to be, when they didn't have anything better to do, when they were united, not divided, when they were devoted, not halfway, when they were praying for God's kingdom to come, thy will be done, not mine, when they were doing this, God's Spirit showed up. He never failed. Now, one last word. In Acts 2, he shows up in, a big, in the biggest way, but that wasn't a one-time thing. It was an everyday possibility, and reality kept for going forward. Before Acts 2, these four things would have just been hope-so faith. But because of what comes in this next chapter, this is a no-so faith. We know what God's going to do. We know what he said he would do, and if we do these four things, we will see God work. Now, what do we do? What do you do with that last part? 
the disgusting filling Judas' seat, what, what does that mean for us? Casting straws or ca- casting lots. Is this what life is like in the Spirit of God? Or this is, is this what life is like knowing the Spirit of God? The reason why Luke includes that in is to show us and to make it very clear to us, this is not what it has to be like in a post-Acts 2 world. This is what life is like before and apart from the Spirit of God. By chance, random, chaotic. You read the Old Testament, they're always casting lots, they're always drawing straws. That's what we're supposed to get from this, I think. This is one last mention of the way it used to be done, the way it was done before. We read about casting lots in the Old Testament. It was never sanctioned by God or suggested by God. It was the method they came up with to try to figure out how to make decisions. We read about them casting lots to choose between people, places, animals. But the gist of it is they did this because there was no better way. Until Acts 2, that is. And as he did in creation, in this new creation, the recreation, the Holy Spirit's going to bring order to chaos, clarity to confusion, light to darkness. And through prayer, devotion, and trusting in him, rather than just feeling in the dark and drawing straws, we can gain clarity. We can gain insight on what was once unobtainable. We can know God's will for our lives, broadly and specifically. Ephesians 5 gives this commandment to Christians. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. So we don't have to wonder and draw straws. We can know. How can we know? It's like Romans 12 tells us that if we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. That is what we're about to discover in the book of Acts. That's how we can be transformed. This is the reality we can step into because of the new post-Acts 2 world. We can have God's presence with us, within us, and we can know God's will, what it is for us, what he wants to do with us and through us. If we do those four things in this post-Acts 2 world, We don't have to draw straws and cast lots trying to figure out what to do. God shows up and God shows us what to do. That's the privilege we have as Christians. We don't have to hope so. We can know so. And that's a relieving and comforting thing to be able to say. And an even more comforting thing to be able to know. Hope this has been a blessing to you, church. Hope that we can walk in the spirit of God, seeking the will of God. In this new world order, in this new post-Acts 2 world, how blessed we really are. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and I'm thankful that I get to preach on this side of Acts 2. Thank you for the clarity you've given us tonight. Thank you for teaching us how it could have been, how it used to be, and showing us that it doesn't have to be that way anymore. Lord, we don't deserve all this, but you are so good to us. So we're thankful and we give you praise for these things. Lead, guide, and direct us. Show us your word and show us your will and leave us a people changed and transformed by the Spirit of God. We'll not forget to ask all this and trust all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.